We are back here on the Rebooted Cinephile. As always, thanks so much for checking us out. You can follow me on Twitter, A-D-N-A-N-S-V-I-R-K, or the podcast as well, Cinephile Pod, C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E-P-O-D. As always, subscribe, rate, review. That's how we keep this sucker moving. I appreciate all the support we've been receiving, and please do spread the word. We've got Christy Lemire joining us. Uh, She's the host of the Breakfast All Day podcast, along with Ben Mankiewicz and Matt Atchity. It's a terrific podcast if you're a film fan. She's going to tell us about the new Danny Boyle film, Yesterday. Also, the Showgirls documentary, You Don't Know Me, uh, the new Chucky film, and Maiden, which is a sports documentary you'll want to check out. So Christy's excellent. And also... Because of Tom Hanks and Toy Story 4, we'll be doing a Mount Rushmore of Tom Hanks' best films. That's right, only four from Hollywood's Mr. Nice Guy, two-time Academy Award winner that's coming up. And we'll conclude our look at the first season of The Sopranos, something we call The Bada Binge. But let's dive right in, Joe. Let's talk about Toy Story 4 and the scene-stealing Keanu Reeves. That's right, Keanu Reeves never been better. Duke Kaboom! playing a Canadian motorcyclist who steals the show. As far as the story, what it's all about, well, Woody and Buzz and the rest of the gang embark on a road trip with Bonnie and a new toy named Forky, voiced by the great Tony Hale. Adventurous journey taking an unexpected reunion as Woody's slight detour leads him to his long-lost friend, Bo Peep. Woody and Bo discuss the old days. They realize that their world's apart, blah, blah, blah. Bottom line is this. It's a really fun movie, as you expect from the Toy Stories, but I wish they'd ended it at Toy Story 3. I thought Toy Story 3 was such a great film, particularly the fact the way that Andy says goodbye to his toys. You know, it's tough not to get choked up to whether you're a parent or whether you're a child, just the way that whole exchange is done. And I really thought that that's where the movie should have ended. Having said that, you know with a Toy Story 4, you're going to get the usual strong animation, the crisp storytelling. Once again, the pacing is solid. It's only been an hour and 40 minutes. And you get all those unforgettable characters. In terms of story, rather than focusing on the bromance of Woody and Buzz, you're now focusing on actual romance for Woody and Bo Peep. So it's a different turn of events. As I mentioned, Keanu Reeves is hysterical playing Duke Kaboom. Um, Andy Potts plays um, uh, Bo Peep. And, of course, you got the familiar guys like John Ratzenberger. By the way, how loaded do you think John Ratzenberger is just from doing Toy Stories? The guy has definitely eclipsed whatever he's made doing this compared to all the work that he would have done on Cheers as Cliff Clavin. But... Like I said, bottom line is this, when it comes to Toy Story 4, I'm giving it three Maple Leafs because of the fact it's a well-done kids movie, once again, entertains parents and kids alike. I just don't think it was totally necessary because Toy Story 3 was so great. And I don't think we really need a Toy Story 5, although I did just read an article in which Tom Hanks said, listen, if the storytelling is good, if it makes sense, we would do it again. So maybe this franchise will continue to endure, uh, but I'm happy with just limiting it to four. Joe, where are you on the, the Toy Story love? I'm excited to see it. I really liked one through three. Um, and I'm really excited to see what they did with Don Rickles as Mr. Potato Head. Because um, from my understanding, they just had a bunch of recordings uh, of him after he passed away. And now he's in the movie as Mr. Potato Head with all these past recordings. Yeah, it's a great point you bring up. I remember looking at the end credits and seeing Rickles' name, and I, I wasn't sure either. I said maybe they, he had recorded some stuff or maybe somebody else, like a voice impersonator. I don't know. I mean, it feels a little odd to do that, maybe a little bit morbid, but you're right. It's Rickles there, and it's nice to hear his voice again. Obviously, a legendary comedic actor and uh, so well in that role of Mr. Potato Head. Once again, Tom Hanks' Mount Rushmore coming up a little bit later. One other film to talk about, though, before we get to Christy Lemire, that would be Rolling Thunder, a new film from Martin Scorsese, and it's focusing on Bob Dylan and this concert he did. Now, listen, Scorsese has made it long clear his love of rock and roll, not only through watching his films, which you all know, um, you know, obviously the use of um, Give Me Shelter in different films and uh, the way that he'll use rock and roll 
not only in films like Mean Streets or Goodfellas or Casino, but also just his love of rock and roll, the tribute to the um, the band in The Last Waltz, um, and the fact he made another Dylan documentary, No Direction Home. I mean, he clearly loves this. He had the live uh, concert film of the Rolling Stones as well. So listen, Marty's a guy that loves his rock and roll. He loves dealing with this terrain. In terms of Rolling Thunder, this is a concert that's, I don't want to say long forgotten, but it's a little bit hazy. Even in Bob Dylan's memory, early on he's asked what it's all about. And he goes, I don't know. I have no idea what it's about. And the strange thing about the documentary is that you feel like it's unfolding in a rather classic form. You've got plenty of live music of Bob Dylan. So if you like his music, you'll love all the live music you hear there. You've got Joan Baez telling stories about it, uh, new interviews as well with her along with Dylan. But also... It, not everything that you're watching is actually true. There's a terrific article in the Washington Post you should all check out if you've seen the documentary because it points out how many things are absolutely untrue. One of the promoters in the documentary, who I just assume was the guy who pulled it all together, apparently is a, is a fictional character. That's not who he is. Um, one of the more memorable experiences is Sharon Stone, of course, a Scorsese favorite from Casino in which she was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress. She's talking about her love of Bob Dylan and going to a concert and maybe they were together at one point and he sang a song to her. But if you read this Washington Post article, it completely shoots holes in whether or not any of this is actually true. Did Dylan and Rolling Thunder actually go to where Sharon Stone was? Was she 17 or 19 at the time? I mean, it's so I don't really understand what Scorsese's thought process on this was. I mean, he's not making a straightforward documentary. My only guess is this. He's saying Dylan himself is a guy for whom a legend is inseparable from the facts. So rather than be a true by-the-book, paint-by-numbers documentary, I'm going to give you some of the music, which is, of course, true, and, and it's not artificial, but then also some stories which just add to the legend of Dylan. Maybe they just enhance the mystique around this guy. And i got to be honest with you, it didn't work for me. As a guy who adores Scorsese, obviously I watch everything he does. I mean, he could be uh, making a film about a guy reading from a phone book and I'd watch it. But in this case, I'm only going to give it two Maple Leafs. First off, Dylan's music just isn't something that appeals to me. I understand he's a legend. I know I'm going to get about 100,000 tweets, people who say he's the greatest musician of all time, and I get the fact, okay, genius, sure, whatever. It's just not my thing, okay? Listen, if Marty wants to make a documentary about uh, John Coltrane, I'm in. Bob Dylan's just not my guy. So personal tastes here influence the factor that just his music isn't something that rings true to me. Having said that, I can appreciate the importance of him as subject matter, but I'm just not entertained from start to finish. The documentary has to work on multiple levels. If it's informative and entertaining, and in the case of Rolling Thunder Review, I'm learning a few things, but I'm questioning the authenticity of those things I'm learning. And as far as Dylan himself, I mean, I just don't find him to be as fascinating a character as others do. Maybe he's influential. Uh, okay, of course he's influential. But as this enigmatic guy who had this disdain for fame and disappeared for a while because of a motorcycle accident and his fans loved him and it feels like he's, you know, not comfortable with fame or not comfortable with his level of fandom. I mean, he, I just found him to be an odd guy. And after I've already seen No Direction Home, like I, I've already explored enough of Dylan's life previously through what Scorsese did. I didn't feel the need to watch this one again. So... Maybe it's my personal taste as well, but I'm not recommending Rolling Thunder, the Bob Dylan review. Joe, have you seen it? Have you heard about this film? It's available on Netflix, by the way. I have heard about it. I haven't seen it yet, but I'll, I'll, I have to disagree with you on this one because I'm a really big Bob Dylan guy, and it, 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 this kind of sounds like it reminds me of the movie I'm Not There that they did on Bob Dylan where they had like... Yeah, I remember that. Sure, yeah. Todd Haynes. And, I'm, and you know, I feel like he's this guy, like, how do you cover his material? And they chose just to go with eight lead actors. So I'm interested to see this whole fact versus va fantasy aspect that this document, yeah. that this uh, movie brings. 
I, again, a film that I wasn't crazy into, although you're right, I can appreciate how innovative it was, particularly the fact that Kate Blanchett played Dylan at one point. Yeah, Todd Haynes is definitely a brilliant director, and I can appreciate the fact that Kate Blanchett playing Bob Dylan. But again, uh, we'll get Joe's thoughts on Rolling Thunder another time. Meantime, some news before we get to Christy Lemire. Movie news. Danny Boyle says he wants Robert Pattinson to be the next James Bond. Seriously, how much hotter can this guy get? Not only doing the Twilight series, uh, it was also a terrific in Claire Denis' High Life. But now Danny Boyle, who's the director of Yesterday, which you're going to hear Christy Lemire talk about, is saying that it was so bizarre. I was sitting there thinking, oh, my God, they should get him to be the next Bond. This is when he was watching the film High Life. And when challenged about whether Pattinson is too young, Boyle said, no, no, he must be in his 30s. How old was Connery? He's ready now. For the record, Pattinson, 33, and Boyle is right. Sean Connery was 31 when he first played the Ian Fleming character in Dr. No. Now, Connery actually wore a hairpiece to obscure the fact he was balding at that time. He'd wear a toupee every one of his Bond movies through 1971, and after that he said the hell with it. But interesting that now... Who knows who's going to be Bond? I mean, Pattinson, he definitely isn't too young. Roger Moore was 45, Timothy Dalton 41, Pierce Brosnan 42, Daniel Craig 38. Um, I don't know if, if Pattinson wants to do it right now because, of course, as we've talked about, Joe, he's focused in on Matt Reeves' The Batman and at least two more films there. So he's locked into playing Bruce Wayne. He's also got an extensive shoot for Christopher Nolan's new thriller, Tenet, and Joanna Hogg's sequel to The Souvenirs. So Danny Boyle's a fan of his, but I just don't think uh, Pattinson can fit into his schedule right now. He's got way too much to go, especially being Batman. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, he has he does have so much going on right now. And I, I feel like, how, how do you feel about someone uh, like Idris Elba or Tom Hiddleston stepping into the role? It's, it's definitely different. Like, Elbow's like, all right, fine, man. Black Bond. Like, why not? He's definitely charming and sleek and muscular. Something different. I don't think Hiddleston works for me. I just think he's kind of scrawny. Like, I don't picture him being, like, brawny and, like, a true James Bond. I think he's more funny than actually, like, you know, a, a, a ne'er-do-well who has got that daring do that I expect to Bond. Definitely. How do you feel about another name I heard uh, being tossed around was Riz Ahmed? Yeah, that's a great one, too. Listen, I love Riz because I love The Night Of. I thought he was so brilliant on that show. And I do think, again, he's young enough. If you want to go with this uh, you know, Pakistani-British actor, I think that would be daring and challenging. But again, I think he's risky. Uh, he's young enough. I mean, he, he's also small, though, too. Like I think Riz is like maybe 5'7". He's very slight. I couldn't imagine Bond being kind of a smaller guy, especially because Daniel Craig was so brawny. But honestly, if they went with Riz or Idris Elba, I think both those guys are such good actors that it would definitely be different. I mean, the thing with Bond is it's been around for so long, you've got to breathe new life into it, right? I just, I just don't want to see the same predictable choices. And to me, um, you know, to me, the choices often are just... Not challenging enough. So, yeah, I, I think both those guys would definitely be interesting. Another story here, Barry's Anthony Kerrigan. This guy is awesome. I love this guy. He, of course, plays Noho Hank, who is weirdly adorable and exceedingly lovable criminal. Charming is a word that comes to mind. Uh, that's why he is going to be playing Bill and Ted Face the Music, reuniting Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, the long-awaited third chapter in the most excellent film series. So Kerrigan's been a really talented character actor. Obviously, if you've seen Barry, you know how talented this guy is. So... I like that casting there, Joe. Barry's Anthony Kerrigan playing a villain in the new Bill and Ted's. Oh, I love it so much. He, he's so good in Barry. It's so funny, too, uh, in Barry, that I'm, I'm really excited to see. See, this, this reboot has so many questions behind it, and this gives me a little bit more comfort knowing that he's going to be the villain. Yeah, I agree. You know, we, we, he's, a, he's a built-in commodity, so hopefully he can at least be entertaining. I don't know if the sustainability of the Bill and Ted franchise otherwise, because he said it's been so long. Lastly, a funny story here from Russell Crowe. He told the story on the Howard Stern Show in the time when he drunkenly bought a dinosaur skull 
from Leonardo DiCaprio. He says <laughs> there's a bunch of vodka involved in the transaction. Cole remembers DiCaprio wanting to sell off one incredible fossilized skull because he was interested in purchasing a different one and that it was sold to Crow for what DiCaprio paid for it. So Crow says, I think he paid like 30 or 35 grand for it. Alistair, by the way, wasn't surprised it wasn't more expensive because he figures these guys could do whatever they want. But as Crow said laughing, it was a bargain basement fossil. It was not a very popular dinosaur. So think about this. You get Russell Crowe together and hanging out with Leonardo DiCaprio, and he's buying a dinosaur skull. The noggin bones of a, a mosasaur. That's a giant serpentine marine reptile prevalent during the late Cretaceous period, approximately 65 million years ago. Think about it, Joe. One day you're going to be loaded here, thanks to Cadence, uh, uh, Cadence 13. You're going to be buying dinosaur skulls, I'm sure. Oh, I can't wait for that day. No, I would have loved to have been a fly on, a wall, uh, on the wall for this whole occurrence just from the get-go. Movie stars, man. They just need more things to buy, right? Now it's time for film critic Christy Lemire. A real pleasure to welcome back to Cinephile Christy Lemire. You can always follow her on Twitter at Christy Lemire, C-H-R-I-S-T-Y-L-E-M-I-R-E. Used to be a part of What the Flick podcast with our buddy Ben Mankiewicz and many others, Matt Atchity as well. Now it's Breakfast All Day. So check out the podcast, Breakfast All Day. Like I said, follow her on Twitter and take a listen. She's a fabulous film critic. And we're going to dive right in, Christy, with Yesterday, the new Danny Boyle film. And you're going to give me the entire story behind this. I haven't seen it yet. I'm aware of the fact that there's this kid who ends up playing all the Beatles songs and no one knows the music and so he's basically corrupted them. But I, I, it's kind of like I'm the character in the movie. I don't understand since I haven't seen it or the premise of it. How exactly does nobody else realize he's singing the Beatles songs? He, he hits his head somewhere? How does this happen? <laughs> it's this incredibly high concept premise where um, all of a sudden there's this global power outage the power goes out for 12 seconds all over the world. And in that time, the main character, Jack, gets hit by a bus. He's on his bike. He gets hit by a bus. He goes flying through the air. And then when he comes to, the power is back on. And something shifted. They, they, they don't explain. They don't really need to explain. But something shifted during that time. And a bunch of things that we know to be important in our lives flat out don't exist anymore. And so he is this aspiring musician. He's a busker on the street and he plays in the local pub for a few of his friends. And one day he just out of nowhere starts playing the song yesterday. He gets a new guitar and to try it out, he plays yesterday. And his friends are just blown away. They're like, when did you write that song? And it turns out that we now live in a world in which the Beatles never existed. There's a very funny running bit in which he will go to Google to look up things that, you know, we used to know about, like Coca-Cola or, you know, basic stuff in our lives. And the beetles don't show up. He keeps searching. He keeps finding the insect beetle. So um, it's kind of a cute idea. He, he then decides to start passing off these songs as his own, you know, and the story is about the, the creeping sense of, of guilt that accumulates as he becomes more famous, as he becomes a star, and people are, you know, embracing him as the greatest singer-songwriter we've ever known. And uh, it's a cute idea. It's a very cute idea. And Himesh Patel, who is the, the lead actor in it, is very likable. 
he sounds a lot like a young Paul McCartney. Um, it, it, but it's, it's an interesting combination of like Danny Boyle, like whiz bang Danny Boyle style filmmaking. And then the screenplay comes from Richard Curtis, you know, who is known for oh, Love Actually. Very, yeah. Yes, Love Actually and like Notting Hill. Oh, it's a funeral? very specific brand of dry British sweet humor. So they're kind of a weird combo with each other. Um, it's a cute idea. It's a very cute idea. And it really can't sustain itself for very long beyond being a cute idea. At the same time, it's kind of too long. It keeps not ending. It keeps, there are points where it could end, and it keeps not ending. Um, Lily James is very cute as, um, the, as Jack's longtime best friend, who's also his manager, who is secretly in love with him. And Kate McKinnon's very funny as the brassy and profane woman who becomes his new manager once he becomes famous in Los Angeles. So it's cute. If you love the Beatles, you know, you'll smile. There are some cute bits here and there, but it's not much more than that. Yeah, whenever I hear high concept, I always kind of shudder a little bit because I say, okay, that to me, it's like, you know, you can explain it in two sentences, which, of course, is why so many of the studios love it, right? Because you can go in there and like, oh, here's the movie. It's this meets this. And you can describe this movie in two sentences. But then my fear always becomes, as you're describing, okay, it's cute, but there's not a lot of depth to it. So then I don't see it like how it's a feature running time, which seems like what you're describing is that it's just not... It's, it sounds easily disposable, which is a, an unfortunate way to describe a Danny Boyle film. Not, not, not entirely unlikable, but, but kind of lightweight. It is very lightweight. It's it's a good airplane movie. You know, it's it's a good like, hey, we're flipping around on Netflix. What should we watch that's going to be enjoyable and it's not going to be too emotionally taxing? Yeah, it's that. Right, we'll check out yesterday. <laughs> it's definitely coming out soon. <laughs> It'll be great for an airplane, Chrissy. That's always the the blurb they want to use when they're promoting the film. What I think is is yeah. great though, you guys just discussed on Breakfast All Day the Showgirls documentary. That's right, the Joe Esterhaas movie, Paul Verhoeven, uh, Elizabeth Berkley. You know, very titillating story with the stripper, which ended up being so bad it's good as a cult following, all the rest of it. And there's a documentary about it called You Don't Know Me. Of course, the character's name is Nomi, and this time it's spelled N-O-M-I. So you don't know me. Very clever title for the doc. But what's it all about, and did you like it? I did. So uh, one of the things we do on our podcast is a little spinoff of the main film review show called Breakfast All Day a la Carte, where I interview my friends or people I know who work in film or TV or pop culture. And so Jeffrey McHale, who directed and edited this documentary, um, is someone that I know from work and just through friends. And um, he made this movie called You Don't Know Me. And over the last 20 or so years, the tide has really turned on showgirls. Because when it came out, it was notoriously terrible, right? It was a punchline. The title alone was a punchline. And the movie was so over the top and it got multiple Razzie Awards and has gone down as like, you know, technically one of the worst movies ever made. But over the years, kind of like with Ishtar, you know, there has been a steady, slow embrace of it. And maybe it's actually genius. And so what Jeff McHale has done here is a really interesting approach to the storytelling. He is primarily an editor. And so he pieces together all kinds of imagery, all kinds of interviews, not just from the film, but from other 
bits of pop culture that are tangentially relevant. And so um, he, you don't see the talking heads that he has interviewed. You hear their voices kind of interwoven throughout the story he's trying to tell. And it's a very intellectual approach to, you know, kind of titillating and salacious material. It's very thoughtful. And it'd be, it'd be really easy to just dunk on it. You know, it's showgirls, ha-ha. Isn't Elizabeth Berkeley over the top? Isn't the script terrible? Isn't it gratuitously sexual and violent? But he really wants to understand what the filmmakers were going for. And he really wants to understand the place that showgirls has come to occupy in pop culture. And so it's not just about the film itself, but it's also about all of the various homages and parodies and and like loving spoofs that it has inspired and so you know there's been a showgirls the musical like a live stage musical um there are nights in san francisco where they will show the movie showgirls and drag queens will come out and like do lap dances for people in the audience you know so it's become sort of a collective celebratory thing and they played showgirls here in la maybe five years ago at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery where they do a lot of outdoor screenings. And Elizabeth Berkeley herself introduced it and was just overwhelmed with applause and praise and cheers. And she was finally able to to take this thing as something positive in her life, you know, to, to bask in the adulation of it and not feel ashamed of it or not feel like, a punchline. So it's a, it's a fascinating look and it will maybe make you change how you feel about showgirls. Well, th- that's the key, Chrissy. So I, I can applaud what Jeffrey McHale is doing. And I look forward to seeing the documentary, but are you that um, moved by the experience that you would now tell someone, yes, showgirls is a good movie? Uh, I'm not sure I would say that showgirls is a good movie, but I would say it's perhaps worth revisiting through fresh eyes after seeing the documentary. And uh, and Paul Verhoeven even acknowledges, we, we see a quote from him in the film, that the reason Elizabeth Berkeley's performance is so wild and so feral and so over the top is that he told her to go there. That's, that's, a, that's a direction that he gave her. And she has borne the brunt of a lot of the criticism for it. So... Um, it's it's it's, a, it's an eye-opening experience to revisit you know a piece of pop culture that you think you know but you don't know me. There you go. That's the title. Yeah, I was gonna say I I really like Esterhaus a lot. Not necessarily for his work. I mean, he obviously wrote mm-hmm. Basic Instinct and mm-hmm. Jagged Edge, but I read it, his autobiography is fantastic. Hollywood Animal because he's a guy who just leaves his life completely stripped bare, and uh, his storytelling is interesting. And I'll say this for the film, and I haven't seen it in a long time. If it's that quotable, there must be some value to it. So I, I do get the you know so bad it's good and the the kitschy value to it. Although you're right, maybe I'll have to see the documentary. Where is the documentary available? Is it available at streaming services or? In theaters where is it so it is playing this weekend in san francisco at the Frameline film festival which is a gay film festival and then next month here in la it's playing at outfest which is also a gay film festival um but it has gotten picked up by a distributor i don't know um when or where that might be available but it will be out in the world soon so keep your eyes peeled for you don't know me all right, we'll find out on the East Coast. I'm not much of a, a horror aficionado, but Chucky is now back in theaters. I don't know if it's a genre you particularly like, Christy, but is it worth seeing if you're a fan of uh, thrills and chills? 
So it's a reboot, you know, it, it's a reboot of the original Child's Play, and it is a different kind of doll this time. Um, Chucky is really more of like an Alexa-type service. It's like Alexa in denim overalls, and it's, it's intended to be, you know, a device that makes your life easier and, and happier and, and more convenient and better. You know, it's funny. My Alexa can hear me talking about her, and I can hear her in the kitchen responding to me right now. That's creepy. <laughs> um, I'm trying to it's ignore creepy, the fact right? that my Alexa talking to me while I'm talking to you. Yeah, so, that's um, great. this doll who gets named Chucky by accident um, has more on his mind than just helping the family out with, you know, turning on appliances or locking the front door. He becomes very possessive and very jealous. And, uh, and begins to emulate the violent things that it sees on TV and in pop culture. It's okay. You know, like it's the original Child's Play is really funny, like really profane and weird and darkly funny. And this is neither ever really funny enough or ever really scary enough. But it's incredibly gory and people get killed in very creative and gnarly ways. So if you do like that element of horror, that definitely exists here. Um, I like Aubrey Plaza a lot, and I wish that she had been given more to do because she has so often shown to us that she will go to weird, dark places. And I suspect that she probably would have been more than willing to do more than the script gives her the opportunity to do. So it's okay. Like if you're a Chucky completist and you want to see all of them, there's this new one. (laughs) Chucky completist. What a funny turn of phrase. Uh, (laughs) Tell me about Maiden. As you know, I'm a sportscaster. You tell me this is a sports theme. I don't know what it's about. Tell me about Maiden. Maiden's great. It's a documentary about the first all-female crew to compete in what was then known as the Whitbread Round the World Yacht Race. And it's a race that takes place every three years. It begins and ends in different destinations. It's like a 33,000-mile, eight-month yacht race. And it had been, and I suspect probably still is, predominantly a male sport. It's it's physical, and um, it's kind of for like, you know, old-fashioned manly men on the sea. And this one woman, Tracy Edwards, um, had this wanderlust and this desire to roam and travel. And she had been on the crew of of several yachts and decided, like, I want to go do this myself. Um, But no crew would hire her to be part of the yacht race. So she said, I'm going to form my own crew. I'm going to be the skipper, and I'm going to form an all-female crew. And, of course, everybody massively underestimated them. These are all grown women, women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and they're repeatedly referred to as girls. This was 1989, back when all this happened. Um, but I suspect that probably that kind of sexism might still exist today in, in this sport. And um, it's really tense. It's really incredibly suspenseful. It, it's shot um, very beautifully. You get the sense of how monstrous the ocean can be and uh, how unpredictable and how you be prepared for anything that comes your way. It's about these strong, adventurous women looking out for each other and taking care of each other and really banding together to do something unprecedented in the face of incredible odds. I won't tell you how it ends, but uh, it's, it's very inspiring 
and uh, and very suspenseful. I brought my nine-year-old son with me to see it because it's summer vacation, and the movie played at like 11 o'clock in the morning. So I said, Nick, you're coming with me. And he didn't want to go. And then afterward, he was so glad he saw it, and he had all kinds of questions, and he was really into it. So it's, uh, it's maybe a good film for the whole family. It's about, you know, being inspired and being courageous and what that looks like. And so uh, it's pretty great. Uh, Nick, by the way, always a big hit on your Instagram as well. So I'm glad he's a part of the action right now. The summertime <laughs> feels. He has thoughts. He has thoughts on things, my kid. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good age, definitely. Uh, last one for you, Christy. You know, I think about the films I've loved from the first half of this year, and The Mustang is one of them for me. I just thought it was a really beautiful and haunting piece of work, and maybe it's a familiar tale and that you know where it's going, but that kind of story of redemption, I just thought was really exquisitely done, and, you know, just the way the horses are shot, and just the whole concept of it. And Matthias Schoenertz is so wonderful in the role. I'd love to see him get nominated or get some recognition for it. I know you spoke to him. What can you tell me about your conversation with him and, and your thoughts on the Mustang? Yeah, it's really incredibly beautiful. And it is a very old-fashioned tale of just, you know, nature, the power of nature, the power of connecting with an animal. It is, it's a Western kind of, um, but it's really just a story of, of redemption. And Matthias Schoenart is, is someone who has done a lot of kind of quietly brooding work. He has that kind of like young Brando kind of Tom Hardy-ish way about him on screen. And he does so much so well without words here. Just you can see how wounded he is, how vulnerable, how angry, how, how the possibility of change is scary. And just the connection that he makes with this animal um, is so transformative. You know, and, and maybe it's a little easy that the Mustang that he is paired with as part of this prison rehabilitation program is sort of him in horse form. You know, it's, it's the most rambunctious, it's the most damaged, it's the most seemingly irreparable, but um, they find each other and they need each other and they change each other for the better. And it shot so beautifully, just like the skies, the vistas, and just the, the quiet that we're allowed to really um, luxuriate in as we, as we watch imagery is quite powerful. So yeah, the Mustang came out several months ago. Maybe it's out there in the world for streaming, but I agree with you. Yes, definitely worth finding. Great stuff from Christy Lemire. You can read her writing, christylemire.com. Of course, follow her on Twitter at Christy Lemire, C-H-R-I-S-T-Y-L-E-M-I-R-E. Follow her on Instagram if you will. Get some updates on Nicholas. And Breakfast All Day is the name of the podcast. Uh, much success. Get, say hi to my buddy Ben Mankiewicz. And uh, by the way, Wheel of Fortune <laughs> Teen Week champion. I know we talked about that last time on Cinephile, but that is, uh, I'm still glad that's in your bio. And I'm sure um, <laughs> one of the many things you're proud of. Thanks, Christy. It's, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. It's all been downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> Not true at all. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. We all need someone to talk to, a person who can support us through rough patches or even the everyday ups and downs of life. That's where Talkspace comes in. 
Talkspace is therapy for how we live today. It's mobile, it's available when you need it, and it's affordable. Life can be stressful between work, family, and everything in between. It's not always easy to find time for yourself. So honestly, Talkspace Online Therapy makes taking care of your mental health more affordable and convenient than ever before. Simply provide your preferences for therapy, and Talkspace will match with one of 4,000 therapists the very same day. Unlimited text, audio, picture, or video messages from anywhere, anytime. Let's be honest. There's always times we all get down. I feel it just like anybody. You wish you could have someone to talk to, and that's why no matter what you're going through, honestly, think about this. You're never alone. Join more than 1 million people who feel happier with Talkspace. One month of therapy on the Talkspace platform costs about the same amount as a single face-to-face session, and you'll never have to face another week without sharing what's on your mind. Just think about Tony Soprano. We talked to him so much here on the Bada Binge. He's the guy that needed a therapist to help him get better, and truly therapy was a real outlet for him. So if you're having a tough time, you can always schedule a live video session with your therapist for extra support anywhere at any time of day. Talkspace has more than 4,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges we all face. To match with your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure you use the code TALK to get your first week for and show your support for this show. That's talk and talkspace.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Mount Rushmore of Tom Hanks movies. All right, now it's time for the Mount Rushmore of Tom Hanks. We talked about Toy Story 4 earlier, so listen, this guy's a brilliant actor. We're all aware of that. You think about his career, all the films that he's made, this makes things awfully challenging in terms of just naming four. That's the whole point of the game, though, right? Two-time Oscar winner, best actor for Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, a four-time Golden Globe Award winner, best performance by an actor for Castaway, Forrest Gump, Philadelphia, and Big, and he's a six-time Primetime Emmy Award winner. So... I think his best film in many ways is Castaway. I mean, for God's sakes, he's acting with a volleyball named Wilson. I think that he's able to show just how lonely this guy is, how sad he is, you know, how happy and jovial he is at the start of the film to just how despondent he becomes. It's an incredible performance. In many ways, it's like silent film acting because Hanks has to do so much by himself. And uh, I thought the ending was really strong when he's reunited with Helen Hunt. It could have been over the top and maybe a little bit sentimental, but the fact they do not reunite was um, really a credit to Robert Zemeckis staying true to the story and the fact that there's not going to be necessarily a happy ending for this guy. He's alive, yes, but the world has changed around him, and Hanks was able to convey all of those emotions. I love Road to Perdition. It was great to see him playing a bad guy. Well, not a true bad guy. He's a good guy gangster, but I thought it was a beautifully shot film by Sam Mendes. Uh, Conrad Hall is the cinematographer. Hank's playing a gangster who's looking after one of his kids, and it's not like a gangster trying to go straight, but he's a gangster who's got more ethics and ideals than the ruthless boss who's played by Paul Newman. Those two actors, both legends, wonderful chemistry together. I love Road to Perdition. Captain Phillips is a film that Tom Hanks was not nominated for an Academy Award for. Really shocking because it's been so long because of how much the Academy loves this guy. But try watching the last 10 minutes of that movie after Hanks is so shell-shocked. It might be the best acting ever of Tom Hanks' career. 
Because, yes, I am the captain now. And I'm going to include Big. we got to get a comedy in there, man. He was actually nominated for an Academy Award for his performance in Big, this man-child who insists that he gets to be on top. He wants to be a guy who really wishes he was big just once. But when, along with becoming an adult, you've got to deal with all the adult pressures. But he does it with such a, a wonderful sense of adolescence and that uh, kid-like uh, look in his eyes. And, I mean, try to watch the scene with him and Robert Loggia and not have a big smile on your face when they're playing chopsticks together. A big is a film that still really holds up to me. So that's my four. Castaway, Road to Perdition, Captain Phillips, and Big. How about the notable omissions here, Joe? I had to exclude Saving Private Ryan, Apollo 13, Philadelphia, Punchline, underrated stand-up comedy movie, him and uh, Sally Field, which I like a lot, and Dragnet, one of my favorite movies as a kid. Uh, him and Dan Aykroyd, incredible chemistry. Turner and Hooch, I mean, I love that movie. I saw that on my birthday when I was 10. Uh, the Burbs, another great comedy. All those missing the cut. There can only be four here. Mount Rushmore, what do you got, Joe? Oh, man, that is a strong list. Okay, I have to what you just said, big, because just the way that he inhabits like the space of a child and like fidgets and his mannerisms is just really incredible acting for a comedy um, to your point, Castaway, he's literally acting in front of a ball, which and you make and you feel sad for the ball at the end of the movie. You feel you want that ball to be your friend. But then I have Philadelphia just for the year that it came out, that moment. But then I think I can't make a Mount Rushmore list without Forrest Gump. Uh, so Forrest Gump is on there for me. It's my fourth. I know it's a beloved film, but I can't stand it. I just find it so saccharine <laughs> and so hokey and just so painful. And as we've discussed, Joe, the fact that it won Best Picture over the likes of The Lion King, great animated film, Quiz Show, a wonderful Robert Redford film, and also, of course, Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption. On top of the fact, I think it's a mediocre movie. I, I hear what you're saying. It's definitely iconic. And definitely when people think of Tom Hanks, they think of Forrest Gump. But not for me, my man. I, I, I understand that 100%. I was actually just listening to the soundtrack the other day, too, and it is so uh, 90s. It is just very much 90s cinematic swell, I guess. Yeah, there's no question about that. Tweet us right now, uh, CinephilePod or Adnan Esferk. Let us know where we went astray when it came to our Tom Hanks Mount Rushmore. The Bada Binge. And now it's time for the Bada Binge as we conclude season one. By the way, getting lots of good feedback. People loving the animation to that. So props to Joe and the rest of the Cadence 13 team. Last four episodes, episode 10 is a hit is a hit. Uh, that is a really strong episode for Hesh, the Jewish gangster, as they talk about the fact that he uh, appropriated black music from a time, owes royalties to this band. Also shows Christopher, his relationship with Carmela, as uh, he decides to give her some money. And, and you know, listen, the rest of the world sees her as eye candy. He wants her to actually run a band and they've got some great jokes here with with um, not only massive genius but also just the band that she's trying to plausibly make into a hit visiting day is the name of the band those scenes are really funny along with where christopher now because he's back he owns the band he just he literally tells the guy to, to go get high because he says you know what you're going to be better that way and the guy's trying to kick his and that's why it's such an issue and he's like no no do the drugs let's go he doesn't care so it's funny to see christopher as his ruthless music manager also the scene as well when he's it just shows the various forms of discrimination in this episode. He's he's in a, a crowded takeout spot with Adriana after they saw Rent. And he's saying, who's welfare check? You get a cash, you get a burger around here. And later, says Hairnet Central, trying to catch the attention of somebody, and says, what am I, Mark Furman? Which, of course, is a reference to the racist cop from 
the O.J. Simpson trial. So obviously that's a good episode for Chris to show the different parts of him. And also shows Tony the scene where he goes golfing uh, with Cusimano and his, and his buddies. You know, as he calls me, he says, now he's Italian, but he's a Metagon. And so my old man would have called the Wonder Bread Wop. He eats his Sunday gravy out of a jar. And it shows how Tony wishes he could have more longing with the neighborhood guys. You know, he's hanging out with Coos and his buddies and they're golfing. But all they look at him as is this big gangster. And they just want to hear stories from him. And he, he feels used when he's hanging out. That makes him feel really humiliating. And after a while, Tony says the hell that he just leans into the stereotype and tells this ridiculous story about John Gotti buying an ice cream truck. So he says, all right, fine. You guys want to use me? Well, I can use you as well and make you guys look like fools. That's a hit is a hit. The other episode, episode 11, is Nobody Knows Anything. Um, this is, again, a focus here on what happens with Vin McKazian, one of the great underrated characters from The Sopranos. Um, Vin is a guy, played by John Hurd, of course, you know him from Home Alone, who ends up killing himself. I mean, it's such a crazy scene. He's like literally fighting through the traffic jam. He's using his the fact he's a cop to get through just so he can kill himself that much more quickly. Uh, welcome to Jersey traffic, which I will now be dealing with here. And before uh, he does kill himself, he tells Tony about the fact that, you know, Big Pussy is now a rat. So you got that great scene where Polly takes Pussy to the Schwitz. And, you know, Polly just refuses, or excuse me, uh, Pussy refuses to take his clothes off because he says, you know what? I'm not feeling good. It's my back, blah, blah, blah. So that whole episode is really strong in the way it, you know, seeds the fact that there's some sort of betrayal coming. Or is it betrayal? Because maybe it's not. Maybe it's just. Uh, Vin was wrong, and he actually thinks there's another guy who's a rat, not Big Pussy, of course, is one of his best friends. Um, also, Mikey Palmese, that character. My buddy Michael Lombardi loves him, too. He's so funny. In the last scene, they're talking about, you know, he's with his wife, and he's, oh, she's like, oh, he told me he loved me. Meantime, he told her to go take a Midol. That's who Mikey Palmese is. All you need to know about him. Um, the other episode, Isabella, episode 12. That's the botched hit. Really strong episode here for Tony. If you like your gangster saga, you just want your true violence, well, this is an episode where literally two hitmen come to kill Tony, and you see how strong he relaxes. I mean, you really appreciate just what a big bear this guy is and the fact that he's able to you know, avoid near death. I mean, literally, as he says to Melfi afterwards, every particle of my, my life was fighting to live. Um, and so this episode lingers not only on the pharmaceutical funk that he's dealing with, but also the fact he nearly dies and is able to overcome it. It really shows you the brute strength of this guy. Also features Maria Grazia Cucinotta, the Italian actress as Isabella. Now, she was best known for her role in Il Postino. She was also in the James Bond film, The World Is Not Enough. And then we get to the finale, I Dream of Jeannie Cusimano. And yes, this literally is a man, Tony Soprano, whose mother tried to kill him. You've got one of the best episodes of season one uh, as she's being taken away on the stretcher in the hospital, and he just yells, look, she's smiling as security pulling him away. Is she smiling at the anguish of her good-for-nothing son, or is it the curve of the oxygen mask or the light in her eyes? Who knows? But as he says to her before he says that line to her, she's smiling. He says, I don't die that easy, Ma. I'm going to live a nice, long, happy life, which is more than I can say for you. And David Chase had said when he conceived the story as a self-contained feature film, he was going to end it with Tony suffocating his mother with a pillow. It would have been matricide rather than this enduring show about the mother and the, the legacy that she just holds over this entire theme and the fact that she tried to kill Tony, that was thwarted. Uncle Junior now knows, uh-oh, how long before my nephew figures out that I tried to have him killed? And so in this whack fest of an episode, you also get, uh, you know, as I mentioned, Mikey Palmese dying, going out for his run. He gets executed in a rather strong fashion. And even Melfi is really good in this episode because, you know, she's kind of trying to touch on the fact that where is Tony... 
Where's his real anger? Where, where, is, where is all this frustration coming from? And he says to her, you don't want to go there. Or, you know, a real example of him saying, listen, I'm going to tell you a lot of things. You're my therapist. But there's a toxic explosion, a subsequent cleanup. We're really not going to focus on what I really do here. It's, you know, it's an interesting way to be with a therapist. You think you're going to be open with a therapist? He's open to a level, but not all the way. And that concludes season one of The Sopranos, a brilliant show. Certainly changed television when it came around. Also, Artie Bucco. How about the scene where he goes to Tony uh, because his mother had said that Tony was the one who, who lit the restaurant on fire, and Tony's going to lie right to Artie's face, one of his best friends. It's great acting by Gandolfini because he shows the level of his insincerity, the fact that he can lie with the best of him, even lie to Artie because he's trying to protect him. He doesn't appreciate the fact that Artie's coming to him, and he's so frustrated. Literally, Artie's pulling a gun on the guy, and Tony's going, listen, I didn't do it. I don't know what my crazy mom said. Let's move on. Um, the last episode, like I said, really is remembered for the fact that the way he just attacks his mom. I mean, you think about ruthless chances you could take as a creator, as a writer for David Chase. I'm going to make a show in which a gangster, his mother orders the hit on him, and it's done by his uncle. Crazy. Crazy stuff. Uh, the final words of season one, to my family. Someday soon you're going to have families of your own. If you're lucky, you'll remember the little moments like this that were good. Thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. My thanks to our producer, Joe. As always, follow us on Twitter. Subscribe, rate, review. Please do help spread the word. Um, next, Cinephile will be coming back. As always, we're weekly episodes now. So don't despair. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.